there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. This is the first instalment in a trilogy interview with carp angling journalist, floater fishing specialist and angling historian Chris Ball. And it's under those three subheadings that I intend to split a whole morning's worth of carp chat. Starting here with your introduction to carp angling and how that would ultimately feed into your particular specialities. So to set the scene, perhaps you should first introduce yourself, then explain how your obsession came about. Okay, uh, my name is Chris Ball and um, most people, well, really everybody in England uh, knows me for one thing only, which is dear old carp and fishing for them. To give you an idea of the kind of guy you're dealing with here, for instance, in the early 50s, I was born in 1946, four of us, ten years old, in the early 50s, we moved from Wales in 1950 to Guildford and uh, stayed there until I got married in the late 60s. But in the early 50s, for instance, every kid, it's the same with my grandchildren now, you're brought up on a, a mixture of sort of images and certainly books, and one of them most enduring would be Thomas the Tank Engine, and uh, which uh, Luca, our uh, first grandson was reading only yesterday out of those ones when I was I don't know five or six years old the only one I ever kept was the one where Thomas had run out of water because the water tower didn't have any water in it and they stopped by a viaduct and the foot plateman lowered um, a bucket over the bridge into the river to get some water and brought it back and anyway they gradually they filled up the tender till they could get to the next water tower but of course next day dear old Thomas had tummy ache because it wasn't the only thing they picked up was water there was fish inside and so there's a whole story about how how the station master the, the engine driver sat with fishing rods and hooked the fish out of Thomas's tank that's the only book I sort of kept from there another one the the fascination with carp caught my first carp in 1959 so then I was um, just 13 years old and uh, it was a small pond, it's still there today, on the outskirts of Guildford, Britain's Pond, still a carp fishery. And um, when you're a kid, uh, very close to my house, I could walk there from open fields, From the, it's not like that now, but uh, then from the bottom of the garden, it was perhaps, I don't know, 300 yards odd, uh, through an open meadow, down to the lake. Not that I ever caught any carp, none of us youngsters did. They were just amazing things that stood on their tail as they jumped in the early morning light or uh, occasionally be walking around with a massive swirl in the edge. They were, to us, uncatchable. They were big, in reality, probably five or six pounds, but massive when you're catching. Funny enough, being in the still water, it was overrun with gudgeon, which is quite unusual, and uh, roach and rudd, and a few Caruso carp. And it was only when uh, men from London in uh, 1959 suddenly appeared on the bank and I actually saw one, a carp for the first time, and it was a monster. And when I asked how did he catch it, it was um, the magic ingredient, floating crust. And that enabled me to catch those first few carp. And some pictures, believe it or not, do 
remain from that period, including some of the first carp I ever caught from Britain's Pond in, in 1959. My last year at school was my first involvement with printing. I've been in print all my life and in 1960 I produced this, as did every other kid in my class. It was a scrapbook containing blank pages with a drawn-on cover, a bit of blocking on the front, and nice spined sort of special end papers, watered end papers. This is 8 by 5 size with about 20 pages in it. Every kid in the school had football players or whatever in there. Now, 1960, can you believe all this ball head in there? were cuttings from Anglin times and they were all carp. And this is uh, one of my most treasured possessions now, all these years later. Just fantastic. Jack Hilton here, one of my stars later on, who I became friendly with. So that's the kind of background, as you can imagine, collecting only keeping the Thomas the Tank Engine fishing story, doing stuff like that at school. At that time, there was a little gaggle of friends, and unfortunately, in this day and age, I've lost contact with all of them, and none of them, as far as I'm aware, remained in fishing. Though, I don't know, maybe something like this might stir somebody's uh, memory, because, believe it or not, I had something from the somebody who knew me in the early 60s who had read a book in Australia recently, and which I had a chapter in there, and contacted me, so I can't quite believe that. Though I, I'd love to remember him, I can't, unfortunately. But he certainly remembers me. I uh, had a bit of a dual life in the 60s as well. This is a sort of... makes me quite a bit different to a lot of people. Besides all the fishing I was doing, and, and carp fishing in the early 60s was starting to grab hold of me really badly, I also went on the stage for 25 years. I was one of the thousands in the early 60s that uh, picked up a guitar and uh, joined a group. I knew by 1966 that I wasn't going to be a star. I started at school in 61, last year of school. There's um, been a book um, about the Guildford rock and roll eras and there's a whole bit in there about me. But the fact remains, by the mid-60s, I wasn't going to make it. The place was overrun with uh, talent and people. But I only stopped for a few months. When we married in 1968, um, suddenly one day, door knocks, this chap who I didn't really know, but he was a bass player, and he said, look, I don't know if you fancy joining the... Are you playing? No, I'm not at the moment. I fancy joining the dance band. So I then, from 1969 to 1983, was in dance bands and played extensively. In the rock and roll era, I made it to television, I made records, but they were big selling records or anything like that, but yeah, we did do that, did radio, they did a bit of TV, and went around the country, and it was an amazing period where um, having a guitar around your neck only meant one thing, and that was women, <laughs> girls, and, uh, and my wife, who used to carry her books home from school, you know, when she was 14, and uh, I've been with her uh, sort of ever since uh, she was one of the girls that used to follow around the name of this group which will make people smile but such was the way 50 years ago as Ricky and the Secrets that's the name, the name of the group and there was Ricky there was five of us in there 
Formed in 1963, say in the rock and roll years of Guildford, there's a whole um, sort of plotted history of what Ricky and the Seagulls and what, what I did. I went on to groups after that. But played on the bill, you know, with Little Eva did a locomotion. I can remember, um, yeah, the Mindbenders, Eric Stewart, went on to be 10cc. Uh, I remember being in the dressing room with him. We saw very, very, very close up, as close as I'm uh, sitting to you, uh, the Rolling Stones, very early in Guildford at the Plaza, Ricky Tick, Keith Richard, but three or four feet away, Brian Jones. We saw, uh, Lynn and I, my wife, saw the only appearance ever in Guildford of the Beatles in July 1963 just as they were on the cusp, they were headlining, but they were on the cusp of sort of going absolutely mega. It was, please, please, me before she loves you. All I'm saying is music has been and is a big part of my life, and it happened during the 60s when this burning inside of carp fishing was sort of growing brighter the whole time. So from then on, what happened to get in a position to catch a big un, I suppose up until 1961, Maybe five pounds was the biggest carp, and they were all long, lean, common carp scaled fish in Britain's Pond. And one of the pals, Chris Powell, who um, I met years later, I'm doing a slideshow somewhere, just to give you an idea uh, our paths cross, or how you lose contact and suddenly you meet people again. I'm doing a slideshow at Farnham for, I don't know, either Farnham Angling Club or something or other. In the break, I was at the bar and there was a tap on the shoulder, turned around, and this fellow looked me up and down and said, Brief it is, it's you, it's Chris Paul. And I said, uh, Yeah? He says, It's Chris, Chris Paul. And it was my one of my original angling pals from the uh, early 60s, bank manager, can you believe now? And uh, he said, We had this fly around, he said, Chris Paul, it's got to be the same bloke, it's got to be him. Anyway, we had a great evening, and I, I never sort of contacted him afterwards. But Chris and I found out, we were Guildford Angling Society members, we found out that there was an exchange ticket with Farnham Angling, one of the other local clubs, and Farnham Angling, in their portfolio of waters, had a place called the Tarn Pond at Cut Mill. Now this had come to prominence in the 50s through um, great catches of double-figure £10-plus carp. In later years it was found out that it was Dave Stewart, famous Dave Stewart, who, with his wife and several other people, uh, really plundered the, the carp stocks there. They uh, went back to being stocked in the early 20s, and they grew and grew and grew, to a state where, locally, in Guildford, you'd heard of cut mill. It's the wrong word. It should be called the tarn, but it became more known as cut mill. And uh, we went... I mean, I had no, you know, no transport... It was too far to cycle. Uh, no buses went anywhere near it. So the only times we'd get there is when mum and dad would either take me or Chris's mum and dad would take And on the very first visit we went in June 1961, Chris caught an £11 common car and uh, it was just monstrous. I always remember just amazing, amazing fish. And then the next time we went, several weeks later, which is this July in 1961, it was my line that raced away, not Chris's, and uh, on a ledged free line potato, 
in came a £10 four-ounce mirror carp. And uh, at the time, I was convinced that it was so exciting, it was even better than chasing girls around. It was just an amazing thing. And from then, the fire just sort of burned more brightly. I joined the club. that We went on exchange tickets for a number of years. We're talking about three or four trips a year, that's all. But we'd fished the night. And um, I joined the club in 64. I got my first car in 68 or 69. But just to give you an idea of the numbers involved, between 1961 and 1969, when I joined the British Carp Study Group, was by far the youngest member of a, a new sort of organisation for carp anglers. I'd managed to catch 39 £10 carp of £10 or more. You know, which is sort of, I don't know, five or six, six or seven a year. I mean, they catch that in an afternoon now. <laughs> but that was in the whole year, and I managed to accrue, you know, with all the pictures and what have you, 1969, 39 doubles. Up to £16.5 was quite something. BCSG, the British Sharp Study Group, allowed me then to come into contact with a great many other carp anglers throughout the country. That was the main thing, not... And obviously, exchange of ideas, new ideas, new baits, tackle methods, everything like that. And um, more importantly, waters that held big carp, because in that period, um, we hadn't actually worked out. You know, the Holy Grail, was, first it was a 10-pounder, then a 20-pounder. And the Holy Grail then was a 20-pounder. And we hadn't worked out the fact to catch a 20-pounder, you had to fish of water that had them because we'd got no idea what the waters held I mean Cut Mill had once produced an 18 and a half pounder or something like that so it must have a 20 pounder is the reason nobody ever caught a 20 pounder then because there wasn't any but we hadn't worked that out then that you had to do that had to get to a place that had them I remember I remained a member for a, a long time and but I let it lapse, Father Magnin, and then rejoined in the early 80s. And the first cast, I hadn't been there for 15 years, the first cast it resulted in a 20-pounder. And the only reason it was, it was there was numbers of 20-pounders in Cup Mill then. So from um, that period, you know, through the 60s into the 70s, I got my first 20-pounder in 76, which was quite a landmark. And started to go further afield, obviously I had a, a car, you correspond with people, and just got to, to know, I mean, correspond, it was letter writing in those days, or either the telephone. And uh, gradually things came together, your thirst for information grew all the time, whether it's tackle baits, and just as important waters that, that held them. To give you an idea, when I started really concentrating heavily on carp in the mid-60s. I knew in that area where I lived, possibly 20 carp anglers that purposely fish for carp. All right, it's a long time ago now, but there's, in Surrey alone there's probably 20,000 carp anglers now. It's just a phenomenal rise. So, yeah, just a little potted history, um, catching fish all the time through the... The 70s, the rock and rolls left me, but I was still playing in the band on the weekend, obviously on a semi-professional basis. Then uh, Yankee appeared in 1979, though I started properly in 1980, and then 
will never look back on, on, on sort of bigger fish. My association and friendship with Chris Yates goes back into the late 60s. He has always been a one-off. In fact, his quirkiness and eccentric part of his life is, is perhaps the appeal that everybody likes him. This is nothing to do with or apart from his undoubted photographic skills and, of course, his writing ability, both of which in the last 30 years have come really to the fore. In fact, the court record carp is sort of just part of the story. But when Chris caught the record carp in 1980, in fact, June the 16th, 1980, is a very important day in carp fishing. First of all, in the evening of the 16th at Redmar Pool, Chris Yates successfully landed new British record carp of 51.5 pounds. Also that day, the same exact same day, Redlands Angling, as it became known, or Redlands Aggregates, of which the uh, Redland Angling is a, the, the Angling Division part of it, opened up a place called Save Lake near Denham in Greater London a big gravel pit, two successful carp anglers before it was club water, and the likes of the famous Rod Hutchinson, Andy Little and people like that, fished there starting on June the 16th and it produced a wave of unparalleled uh, catches which set the, the whole of carp fishing alight. I remember looking at adverts for some of the bait companies at the time that were promoting uh, whatever to do, do with some of these catches, and the pictures were just unbelievable. I mean, these were numbers of 30-pounders. After he caught the record, Chris Yates became friendly with a certain gentleman called Donald Leaney, who plays a big part in carp fishing in this country, not an angler, so that, that's a very important part of it all. But he had a soft spot for carp. He ultimately owned a company called the Surrey Trout Farm, which imported small fingerling carp, Donald Leaney's business was in Hazelmere, which wasn't far from where Chris lived at the time, which was Hindhead in Surrey. And uh, he, he went for what he called, I don't know, maybe once a month or something like that, high tea. And uh, he would sit and discuss with Donald Leaney about the Galatian carp, this uh, race of carp that Donald Leaney was, had... Um, through the Surrey Trout Farm imported into the UK from, uh, certainly when uh, Leaney got involved with the company from the mid-1920s onwards. Obviously things stopped for World War II, but were reassumed after the war. And uh, he mentioned in passing, because Chris's record fish was one of the fish that came via the Surrey Trout Farm as a fingerling, a sort of five and a half, seven inch fish, and a grown from uh, being stocked in 1934 to becoming, in 1980, a 51.5-pound record carp. And he mentioned to Chris that um, he had copy invoice books of every transaction that uh, Surrey Trout Farmer uh, had made. And, and they, at that stage, resulted in 13 of these massive copy invoice books. And he showed Chris some of these, and he lent him several and Chris poured over these he told me about them I went to his house we lived reasonably close then I used to see quite a bit of him and I remember sitting in the scullery of that house in Whitmore Vale looking through these invoices and trying to make head and the tail of it 
obviously to where these magical fish have been stopped and as a direct result of that uh, Chris and I found French and Ponds uh, which is a Farnham Angling Club venue two ponds small and big pond we also found the Army Lake at Hawley on the outskirts of Fleet that area and several others and Chris and I went we went on one day in the close season we went and visited both of them Frensham and no it wasn't close it was the summer and we went in the same afternoon to both of them when we arrived at Frensham I had no previous knowledge that Frensham held uh, Frensham small pond held carp Uh, certainly not since 1952 which is when they were stopped those fish and uh, we walked along the beach area real inland seaside that place with shallow water and sand running down I mean my wife and our children used to go there in the school holidays it's a a real attraction but when we arrived um, there was hardly anybody fishing but we walked along the bank sure enough there was a fellow with a pair of rods and indicators and everything set up for for all the world carp fishing when we asked him he said he was eel fishing (laughs) then he carp in there and he sort of just was very no no it's decent eels in there carp now mate uh, as we walked away, Chris and I knew that he knew that we knew he was carp fishing. <laughs> and uh, so, um, anyway, one thing led to another. And um, at the start of the 1993 season, I finished with Yately. The carp fishing circus had started to catch up with Yately and it was becoming more busy. And, you know, I'd done very well there. I mean, there was loads of other fish I, I could have caught, but on and off I fished for every now and then uh, in the intervening years but uh, once Frenchman came on the horizon that was it Uh, here was a chance to the unknown and uh, just unbelievable I caught my first 30 pounder I call that fish an unknown fish from an unknown water that had grown from a small fit in the palm of your hand fish in 1952 to become my first 30 pounder in 1983 there was quite a number of mature carp in that water at the time and they displayed these fantastic length often fish approaching 30 pounds could be three foot in length nice streamlined often the mirrors were heavily plated fish so gone with the high backs and deep bodies of of Yately to these wonderfully coloured magnificently scaled um, mirrors a few commons in there as well but uh, dominated by big mirror carp I uh, fished there for a few years and then a terrible disaster happened in 1986. In the autumn of 1986 uh, the place was stocked with um, a number of small carp and um, they bought to that water uh, like the Indian in the jungle and the common cold. They bought something to that water that these old boys in there, I mean they were... 35 year old plus carp at the time during the winter of 86 through 87 a terrible fish kill happened there and ultimately out of at a guess somewhere around maybe 60 to 70 mature carp in the water the virtually 90 percent of them died it was a terrible thing in my fishing career never mind carp fishing to see uh, some of these fish dead. I've seen enough dead carp to last me a lifetime now. 
when my King Cart Waters book was launched in 1993, one of the chapters was about Frencham. And I went back, since February 1987, I've only been back twice. And once was to take a picture for the King Cart Waters book of people bathing, to give a general idea of the inland seaside properties of the place. And the other time was um, in 2003 when I realised, just sitting here one day, that it was exactly 20 years ago on the 7th of the 7th, 2003, since I caught that first 30-pounder. And I didn't say anything to Lynn. I just went that day. And I thought, hang on, I took several pictures that day because the carp were very, very active. That 30-pounder formed part of a very big catch that made headlines at the time. Uh, of three fish for £81 today. They can catch two fish to, to do that, or catch one fish bigger than £81. But then uh, it was quite something. Uh, my first £30-pounder, you know, £81 of, with three fish. It warranted people like Chris Yates to come out and, and photograph them. It was a great day. It was a fantastic day. And a fickle finger of fate just pointed round and eventually stopped at my name and said, Today... Is the day. Anyway, I went to. I'd taken a picture when the mist cleared that morning and I, on the 7th of the 7th, 83. I took several pictures because the fish were jumping out a long way and I mean, I didn't have very good photography gear then and they're just dots in the disc. I can't see anything other than rings, ripples appearing. But I thought, well, if I go back, I'll replicate that picture. In fact, I used to have it up on the wall. It's not here. I've got the two pictures together, they're exactly 20 years apart. It was more or less in the same spot. I mean, I wouldn't say it's the exact foot, but within a few feet, the view, the camera shot, was more or less the same. You know, the only difference was the tree line was higher. That's all. The trees had obviously, in 20 years, had grown that bit taller. Up on that, the vista appeared very, very similar. Yeah, so that finished me off. I managed to catch quite a few uh, fish from French, I mean, including a number of 20-pounders and a 30-pounder. Then, um, well, after that terrible low of seeing all these fish die through f things that the fishery, it was then under the auspices of the Thames Water Authority, before the EA started. And uh, we had a marvellous chap who was the regional uh, on-the-ground chap for Thames Water Authority. He was a carp angler. He's high up in the EA these days, not around this area, somewhere in Devon or in the southwest area. Andy Thomas, he deserves a special mention. He, he had the interests of the carp anglers in the Surrey, Hampshire area at heart. You know, now it's, I mean, what is it? It's 25 odd years since that disaster. At the time, he couldn't tell me what killed them. Now, 25 years later, I don't think he can probably tell me now. I ended that chapter in the King Cartwaters book with a, what I consider to be a very telling sentence to end it with, is, was, uh, we know so little. Those fish, to give an idea of the enormity of the problems that carp fishing has still got with uh, stocking of fish, moving of fish, transferring possible diseases, is that those fish at Frensham had somehow, it's a shallow water, you can wade across, you know, you go up to your chin, but you could wade right across the water. It somehow survived the 62-63 freeze-up. For people that don't know what happened then, 
the UK was locked in ice for 12 weeks. The Thames froze in places. The sea froze around the stanchions of Brighton Pier. When the ice in March disappeared, it just left a havoc in fisheries in the UK. The Britain's pond fish died. A huge amount of fish kill happened throughout the country. How the French and fish survived that, which they did, I have no idea. Though there might have been underwater springs or what have you. Yet something smaller than a pinhead ultimately killed them. And, you know, I've never been able to sort of reconcile that. Just uh, amazing. The first fish that was found, I was there. And it was Ron Buss, a famous carp angler, still around today. Good friend of mine. Uh, came down the bank. Uh, this was in November 1986. I said, oh, come and have a look at this fish. It's a big carp just coming on the ripple. There's nothing wrong with it, but it won't stay upright. I can't get it going. It's a big fish. Anyway, I went up there immediately. I recognised the fish. It was a fantastic fish. Maybe I was one of the few, if not the only one to ever catch this particular carp and uh, I remember Ron stopping with it for ages in the water uh, supporting it between his legs and it just died and I mean there was nothing wrong with it you could have posed on the bank with it for a capture picture fortunately that fish was taken away and set up and you know didn't go to waste for posterity and it still to this day is in a glass case it was around around the mid-twenties that fish but um, we never even put two and two together then that, that maybe the restocked fish had anything to do with this until, of course, afterwards. Circumstantial evidence, people say, well, how do you know? How do you know that? How do you know they were responsible? Well, the circumstantial evidence is quite important in this because at the same day, from the same batch, Farnham Anglin also stopped Badshot Lee, another one of their still waters, and guess what? The old resident carp there died as well. So um, it almost certainly points towards that. So a pretty low period then in the in the mid um, mid eighties. But you know you pick yourself up. You go on. I suppose the silver lining to that terrible black cloud that hung over my carp fishing career at the time forced me to look somewhere else. I mean, here we are, twenty five years later. If they were still there, I'd probably be still fishing there uh, for them. Such was the draw of the place. But I did go on to bigger and better things. and I wouldn't have fished at the mighty Raysbury. I wouldn't have fished at the famous Longfield and um, catch these surface-caught big carp. There was a, a little period where I only had to put a bait in the water and begin to grab hold of it. And they were all surface-caught fish, and it was at a time when uh, there was hardly anybody really persevering surface fishing. There were surface anglers that'd have a go in the obvious conditions when they could see fish floating around but saying that it was still not an underrated method people just couldn't be bothered with it it was in the era of the boilie and the particles you know everything was dictated towards uh, bottom fishing and i persevered you know on the top and i proved from the smallest little estate lake to the hugest ocean you know, hundred acre raysbury that you could, by design, catch them off at the top, including some of the big ones as well, not not just uh, small fish. And obviously that sort of 80s period honed that part of my skill to quite a high level. 
I could even at one stage on some waters just by looking at the way the fish, not even casting in, looking at the way fish were reacting on the surface, whether they were at that time catchable or not. Simple things like um, they don't take floaters here and uh, people would always put in mixer or some kind of floating food in areas where the fish were sunning themselves, which would often be shallow water where the fish were comfortable, the temperature was nice for them, and yet they wouldn't touch one piece of floating food but I soon realised that those same fish later on in the day or at different weather conditions over deeper water you threw something on the top and them same fish that wouldn't look at anything in shallow water suddenly started taking them and then little sort of tricks like that so the whole floater fishing thing which has been around for me for a long time some of the, the first carp I ever caught as I, I mentioned in in the late 50s was on floating crust and it's still the same today last year for instance 2011 i caught my first 30 pound common carp in the uk and that was off the top and that was a big thrill that was a fish that was 33 inches from nose to the fork of the tail and had a 27 inch girth it was an absolutely amazing fish as often say with surface fishing it is exciting when you're sitting behind a pair of rods in a standard carp fishing situation and the bobbing moves, you know, you get a twitch or whatever or you get a roaring run. It is exciting, of course it is. But often we get in knots and that, is that a line bite? Was that, what was that, you know? But the thing is on the surface, especially if you can get them to come close, there's no guesswork. It's there in front of your eyes. And of course, equally in front of your eyes is the fact that um, you see a bite, just an incredible bite. I've written tens of thousands of words on floater fishing. I'm the only person ever to produce floater, a, a trio of floater fishing videos, floater fishing book dedicated just to floater fishing. Just trying to get people interested in trying to do it. Inevitably, it's one rod fishing and it's creeping around. That's hand in hand with stalking done a lot of that on the bottom as well and on the surface so all that has gone through the, right into the 90s um, my life changed forever in June 1994 with the start of Carp Talk where we um, three of us started to produce a weekly modern technology that allowed um, us on Windows based software computers to produce a product though rough around the edges to start with but turned into a quality product at home. And um, so I lived the dream that a lot of people maybe think is terrific, which is making your hobby your job. Uh, when you're involved in I've always worked for other people until that stage. And of course, the terrible reality of business starts to hit you like things you'll never think of. Like the first VAT period, that period, you know, suddenly you've got to find four grand and all stuff like that plus the sheer physical fact of producing 64 pages plus a cover each week for the first three editions three of us produced that morning noon and night until we employed somebody else and then gradually gradually it got going my, all my friends i mean never mind the trade the trade just laughed and fell on the floor said good god they'll lose their shirt everything my friends thought I was nuts. 
But I don't know, we worked at it, I went out selling, advertising space, and um, carp fishing grew and grew and grew. Amazingly, now, 18 years later, there's not one product that's entered that market. There's been a whole plethora of monthly carp magazines, and at my desk here, in my office here, I receive just about every carp fishing publication in the world. Can you believe Katistan have got their own monthly? It's phenomenal what has happened in carp fishing. Yeah, nobody's been mad enough, I guess, to produce a weekly. Uh, and it's out every Wednesday. We're talking on a Wednesday at um, delivery service there. That'll be the magazine fresh off the press. So that um, curtailed my fishing for a while as we got the business going. But then... Once things had settled down and I didn't have to do everything anymore, uh, other people were employed, it enabled me to get out and around again and uh, and get out. And, yeah, I mean, it's just gone on and on. Uh, I was very fortunate in, like a lot of places that I fished, I managed to be there before the crowds arrived. Another example of that would be around this period where in 1994, Len Gerd, very important person in course fishing or carp fishing in this country, moved his linear fisheries business from Milton Keynes to Oxford and um, became a partner with uh, Smiths of Bletchingley, which are the big gravel extraction company in the Oxfordshire area, or one of the big ones. They had already excavated and landscaped lakes in the Whitney area, sort of south of, of Oxford, Len started this business, I mean it's now, sort of 20 years later, so besides Semex, they're the, I guess the second largest, biggest in this country. Len told me that uh, when they surveyed the lakes, they had been stopped um, some years before, I mean they, over the years, extensively restocked, but there were fish already there. And he did some very early Matt Hayes videos there. So tench fishing, I can remember being one of them, and the sort of general uh, roach fishing, stuff like that. But Len had mentioned to me, he said, there's a whacking great carp swimming around, you know. There's big carp. There's a place called Manor, one of the lakes, Manor Farm, and he said, it's the biggest we've seen float while Matt's been tench fishing. Then they had a go for him, Matt managed to catch one or two nice ones. He said, uh, you should come up and have a look, which I did. I went up and had a look. Virtually nobody fishing there at the time. They just started Richworth Linear Fisheries there uh, in 94. And, um, yeah, there were some good ones around. And I managed to lock a lot of the fish I've caught, quite big ones. I caught them before they were famous. <laughs> and so it happened at Linear where uh, I've caught a load of fish, particularly from Manor. And big ones, you know, over 30 pounds, before the place was known, really, and certainly before the fish were known. I'll give you one little story that will make you smile. Uh, Roy Parsons, who's the head bailiff, and still the head bailiff all these years later, a lovely bloke, and who I got to know really well. Around that 94, 95 period, when we lived at Frimley, so I was, if I really rushed along the M4 and, and rushed up, I could probably do it in about 75 minutes. And um, the following year, sort of 95 or 96, I can't remember which, somewhere around the mid-90s, I said, Roy, if you ever see 
them big ones floating around on the top of manor ring me because I could go I would drop him and go most of the time I get that phone call from Roy Christ you can't go stuttering he was and for some reason I can't remember I couldn't go that particular day oh I couldn't go that I don't know what it was it was some important meeting I don't know with a distributor or something like that I said, oh, Roy, I can't go. Uh, uh, please, Roy, you know, don't, uh, um, just tell me that next time. Anyway, sure enough, the following week or the week after, I dropped everything. 12 o'clock he rang, dropped everything, and I was there, you know, on the banks at about 20 past 12. And uh, in those days, because I wasn't even an old boy then, he allowed me to take my car in. You wouldn't be allowed to do it these days, but part somewhere close to the, the lake. And uh, he said, they're on the Whitney Bank, they're, they're off this Whitney Bank. Of course, when I stood there on the Whitney Bank, there were these big backs, shiny backs going up and down. And, uh, catapulted some chum mixer at them, and it was, uh, within five minutes, it was World War Three, just going berserk. And Roy appeared by my side, and uh, second cast, something like that, not first cast, but second or third cast, I pricked, hooked and lost one, in an instant, and the, the, the plume of water that went up as this fish spooked, this was about 30 yards out, and the wave that came into the shore from 30 yards out was still about two inches high, so give you an idea of what it was. And, and then I had one or two other half chances with Roy on my shoulder, and then he claimed he'd have to go because he thought he was going to have a heart attack. And so he said, just ring me. Anyway, I mean, he didn't happen the next cast or anything like that, but within, I don't know, 30 minutes, the body of mixer that wasn't taken, there was no wind on the water, but there's always drift, and it had taken the residue away from the area in front of me and just sort of, I don't know, there must have been about 30 or 40 pieces, had just drifted in a kind of lump and gathered just at the edge of this bay where the, the sort of drift finished. And there was a fish slobbering in amongst there. I could see it. It was a dark shape. It didn't look particularly big. And uh, I thought, right, well, I'll wait for him to come back, you know. And I was steadily trickling in the mixer. Anyway, after about five minutes or so, got the better of me. And I just, oh, just threw it at this fish. And goodness me, can you believe it? I eventually got it in. It was a big one. And <laughs> to give you an idea how coincidences happen in fishing, for years, and in fact today we still do, we produce the linear brochure for linear fisheries. These days they send us all the pictures and text and all that, but years and years ago uh, I compiled it. In other words, I got slides and pictures, scanned everything, uh, knocked all the text together and what have you. And um, it was for me to make the picture choice. So it was a week or more job to do it was, I don't know, 32 pages, something like that in those days. A lot of pictures, not much text. And uh, I opened a packet one day from Adam Pennin, a well-known and respected carp angler, who these days works for Corda. And he wrote an article about it, and in there, there was a glorious fish. And I looked at this slide, and I blew it up on the projector on the wall, I remember. Anyway, I rang him up, I said, God, this fish is... Oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, it's not very often caught there. It's called a random linear... It was a mahogany-coloured 
rockfish all year round, not just the winter. Big plated scales on it. Fantastic looking fish. Anyway, can you believe it? Back to this time when, uh, when I've eventually I saw this fish at the edge of the net. I knew it was a big one that morning after Roy had left me. It went in the net, and uh, I looked down at it. I thought, oh, jeez, this is a good one. The old boy's done it again. This could be thirty pound. And um, bit the line, but I did lift it out of the water, and I rang Roy on my mobile straight away. Anyway, it's round in the tick. And, uh, of course, looked in the next. God, how about that? There it is. Yeah, that's the random linear, that is. And out of all those fish in the lake, only a year before had I been, you know, sort of uh, in awe of this fish when I'd handled it and scanned it for publication, that it should be in the bottom of a net. And I went on to catch sort of pin scale and a load of other ones there. So it was great in the, in the 90s, and I still go there. I haven't been there this year. The weather's been so bad, but I still managed to catch sort of a few each year. And I upped my personal best a few years ago there from Manor Lake as well, off the top in the UK, which was just by a few ounces, uh, £36.5. So, yeah, it's been a roller coaster ride that I'm still on on surface fishing. There's been a great upsurge in catching carp not on the bottom, there again, not on the top this famous, uh, now famous zig rig, which is presenting a floating bait anywhere between, say, a foot off the bottom to an inch below the surface and all the areas in between. And there we go, up to the millennium, and um, I've just been uh, all over the place. Foreign fishing's been a a bit of that life, a bit of French fish. My first 40-pounder a long time ago caught in France. In fact, I caught two that week. And then the amazing uh, carp of the St. Lawrence River in uh, upstate New York, which, I don't know, seven, eight, eight hundred mile long river. There's not thousands, there's millions of carp in that river. There's pictures of me, which are some of the most evocative pictures in my head in carp fishing. You're fishing there in the St. Lawrence, you know, a wild mile and a half wide river with 300-yard tankers coming within 100 yards of the shore. They just suck the water out from the bank. And when they come back, you have to rush up the bank as all the water comes back. Just extreme fishing in rocks and underwater braids. And we're fishing there with 90-pound braid main line. Not for the size of the fishing camp, just for the conditions you find. You're in a hostile fishing environment. But it's the time that rod has bounce down the line screen like you pick up that rod and stand on a rock in the middle of the St Lawrence and you don't know how to those millions of carp what you've hooked it is such an adrenaline rush I've been lucky and fortunate enough to do that sort of a number of times and uh, I've got enough 30 pound common carp pictures to, to last me a lifetime and uh, I say uh, by chance the season there for Paul Hunt at Canadian Carpman started just yesterday in the first week of May so uh, I'm sure tonight I'll have a look on his website and uh, I'll see some uh, sort of smiling anglers so uh, there you are as best as I can encapsulate it and obviously missing out stuff as well just to give you a little potted history of it all As I said in my opening comments, a morning devoted to three separate yet linked facets of your carp angling life. 
with cross-links between the early learning curve, carp history, and your own specialist approach to the actual fishing to be picked up on in each part of the trilogy. The obvious answer then would be to listen to all three extracts, for which I am extremely grateful to Chris Ball for giving up his time to record, and which I know from the urgent phone calls interrupting our endeavours throughout the morning, both could, and perhaps should, have been devoted to other matters. (laughs) 